Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the historical through-line that has brought us to the present state of border barbarism we are now witnessing, and how well-meaning liberals have been playing on the nationalists' turf for way too long. Clips today come from In the Thick, Jacobin Radio, Counterspin, This is Hell, and a TED Talk from Paul Kramer. Part of what you say is like the American exceptionalism, that we're so badass, we're so fabulous, <laughs> that therefore expansion yeah. comes naturally to us because we're so fabulous and badass. Am yeah, I right? Something like that. I mean, look, the United States is exceptional in that no other nation has had such a long run of the ability to use expansion to organize its domestic power. Mm. When I talk about expansion, I mean expansion in all of its many forms across the landed frontier, through militarism, through militarism understood as an ideological crusade, so some kind of philosophical expansion, through markets right, right. understood as morality. No other nation has, not even any empire that even understood itself as expansionist, has such an ingrained sense of expansion being central to maintaining what it understands as virtue, and virtue meaning an absolute adherence to private property and a certain kind of individualism. And that is what is exceptional about the United States. Okay, so it seems a little bit of a contradiction when you talk about expansion, when you talk about putting up border walls, right? Mm. So can you give us some examples, like specific, juicy, ugly or pretty ones, or pretty <laughs> ugly ones, um, about what this kind of looked like in historical moments? Well... The whole thing was expansion across the Atlantic to the Atlantic seaboard, then across the Appalachias into the Mississippi Valley, and then across the Mississippi Valley into the Mexican-American War, where the U.S. took, you know, over a third of Mexican territory and filled itself out across the continent to the Pacific. That that was all expansion, a Louisiana purchase, and then then the leap out into the world with the with the War of eighteen ninety eight, in which the U.S. took the Philippines, took Puerto Rico. Uh, turn Cuba into a, a, a neo-colonial annex. So these are all the examples of expansion. But we could talk more specifically about what expansion does. Um, and it is contradictory, and that's the whole point. The border wall is what comes when expansion is over, when the empire ends. Julia, didn't you just love the way Greg just kind of walked us through, like, American imperialism, like, you know, in a one, yeah, two, three? Yeah, American imperialism, but also the fact that expansion and then containment an obstacle is sort of this push and pull. And Greg, like, that's where I'm kind of like geeking out on the things that you're saying. So what's the flip side when we talk about borders and containment and not allowing people in? What are those specific examples? Because you say like it happens when when expansion reaches its peak. Yeah. So you're saying that we're reaches kind of its end. Reaches when it, its end when 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 it reaches its limit when it hits a wall. Literally, literally, when domestic political coalitions can no longer use the promise of expansion, the promise mm. of mm. economic globalization as a moral mission, or the promise of war as a moral mission to organize domestic yeah. politics. And it ended. It ended. I mean, it, it, there's been different lulls across the centuries-long history of the United States, but most recently, the end was the 
post-9-11 foreign policy of the neocons, which drove the United States into the Persian Gulf and the, and the moral and strategic catastrophe of that war. Uh, it ended with the collapse of the neoliberal model in 2008, which we've, we're in a recovery, but it's revealed profound levels of social immobility and inequality. And then, of course, right. climate change is another limit. So politicians can no longer point to beyond the frontier Mm, mm, and mm. say that's where we'll settle our differences. Unless they're pointing to the moon, which this president has also done. Yes, except (laughs) we can get to the (laughs) way he's done that differently than other presidents. So the argument of the book is Trumpism is what happens when the empire ends, when you can no longer deflect the racism or vent the passions and, and they all start turning inward. And the argument makes the case that it predates Trump. It started... The racism directed at Obama, let's bracket Obama as a neoliberal, as a okay. as, as friendly to corporate interests, as yeah, as, as a compromiser, as a restorer of empire, or as restorer certainly of U.S. power. Okay. But the hatred that he generated and, and refracted was, I think, a, a result of this moment. It had nowhere else to go. It could mm. no longer be deflected elsewhere. So the the arc of the book is going from the frontier as a symbol of openness and moving outward in the world to the wall as a closing it down. Mm. So in the book you write, and I'm quoting you because you're so smart, you wrote, (laughs) borders, not to mention walls, represent domination and exploitation, but they also announce the panic of power. Mm. Borders announce the panic of power. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, that it says more about what's happening on the inside than what's happening on the outside, that it represents a a kind of... um, crisis of confidence within domestic politics. I mean, look, different physical boundaries started going up on the U.S.-Mexican border going back to Jimmy Carter, if not Richard Nixon, but they really started taking off during Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton's election when he passed NAFTA. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. Today, we have the chance to do what our parents did before us. We have the opportunity to remake the world. For this new era, our national security, we now know, will be determined as much by our ability to pull down foreign trade barriers as by our ability to breach distant ramparts. Once again, we are leading. And in so doing, we are rediscovering a fundamental truth about ourselves. When we lead, we build security. We build prosperity. For our own people. It was basically the corollary handmaiden to free trade. And, you know, the U.S. emerged victoriously out of the Cold War, right? Mm. The Soviet Union collapsed, was wiped off the face of the earth. There was no superpower in sight. The U.S. set the terms of uh, military and market domination. And yet, when you look back to that time, it was a profound moment of, of crisis. I mean, there were race riots in L.A., the patriot extremist movement in the heartland, Oklahoma City. The bomb went off just as hundreds of people had showed up for work, just as children had been dropped off at a daycare center on the second floor. In one devastating moment, the whole front side of the building was ripped away. There is simply no way to be specific about how many people have lost their lives. But the death toll is clearly increasing as the hours go by and emergency teams work their way through the devastation. It was easy to see why the governor of Oklahoma said, 
This was the work of animals. There was this sense that for a superpower that emerged so so triumphant, there was a profound crisis of confidence, and and a lot of that anxiety, I think, was directed increasingly at the border in different ways. There was different. I think the xenophobia and nativism that has now united and exploded with Donald Trump has different currents. Yeah. It has its neoliberal Bill Clinton version, which has its own history. <laughs> and it has yeah. its nativist KKK, you know, let's let's hunt down Mexicans at the border and build and, and build a wall strand. And I think they've come together in the current moment. Mm. But one thing I think it's worth remembering is that it took a while for the sentiment to take an institutional form in the 80s and 90s the way it did. You're right. In the 1980s, hardcore anti-Mexican nativism, let alone civilizational Islamophobia, had not yet become a decisive force in national immigration politics. You know, and even Ronald Reagan would say things that to our ears today sound pretty reasonable. Or even radical. Even radical. I mean, he said, you don't build a nine foot fence along the border between two friendly nations. That's something AOC could tweet. <laughs> uh, and you've mentioned Prop 187 in in California. I mean, that sort of was that when it became institutionalized? Would you identify that as a sort of key moment? Yeah. And a big thing that happens in the 80s, the politics of which are incredibly complex because they're so divergent from where we're at today is there is a strong sense in the eighties that immigration is a problem that needs to be solved. And the way that happens is in 1986, Reagan signed something called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which legalizes a few million undocumented people, I think mostly Mexican, and also creates employer sanctions, i.e. like fines against penalties for employers who hire undocumented immigrants in the future. And at the time, weirdly enough, this legislation that ultimately legalizes, I think it estimated 2.7 million immigrants, is initially opposed by immigrant rights groups and supported by FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform because immigrant rights groups were so worried about the employer sanctions incentivizing discrimination against against immigrant workers that they they thought that was much worse than the legalization being offered whereas fair didn't like didn't like the legalization but thought that employer sanctions might be the way to to end undocumented immigration so there is a sense that immigration is is a problem that has to be dealt with that is pervasive enough in the 1980s that it leads to this this landmark law but nativists are are nowhere have nowhere near the political power that they have after the 1990s at that point one the laws employer sanctions are not are kind of toothless they don't really work i mean people continue to hire undocumented immigrants and then in 1990 the immigration act of 1990 actually dramatically expands legal immigration and fares against it, and they just get steamrolled. It's not until Prop 187 that the nativist movement realized that what it's going to win on is campaigns that are just centrally about attacks on undocumented, aka illegal immigrants. And that's where they align with where mainstream politics is moving as well. 
because you have, as I mentioned earlier, both Republican politicians like Pete Wilson, Democratic senators like Dianne Feinstein, and also, you know, Bill Clinton, who says in 1995, quote, our nation was built by immigrants, but we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. And so FAIR and other anti-immigrant activists are able to benefit from the growing anti-immigrant politics in the mainstream and push it even further into the anti-immigrant right. The problem with this is that what the anti-immigrant movement really wants is to dramatically curtail legal immigration. At the end of the day, there are far more legal immigrants in the country than undocumented immigrants. And what nativists want is just almost no immigrants, period, especially not ones from outside of Europe. But the big irony that I sort of end the book by describing is that they doubled down so hard on the war on illegal immigration that was embraced by Bill Clinton, by George W. Bush, by Barack Obama, that when it, when they finally got Donald Trump in office, the most one of the most anti-immigrant presidents in American history, there wasn't a popular movement to restrict legal immigration because the problem has long since been defined as one of illegal immig- so-called illegal immigrants. And so the solution become these absurd yet still racist and cruel performative gestures like the wall, which is just an extension of the same kind of border performances that have been going on, especially since Bill Clinton's presidency. You know, we've gone from a few thousand border patrol agents in the country to nearly 20,000 today. We haven't stopped illegal immigration, so-called illegal immigration, moved it around, forced people in the desert so they die. All of this is to attempt to convince the American people that the government can make life a, a life that feels uncertain and insecure, secure and certain for them. That continuously doesn't happen, even though these political leaders over and over again promise that whatever oppressive measure will do that. And so when it fails, the ante just gets upped. So we now have Trump in office tying his entire presidency to this absurdly maximalist gesture of a wall across the entire southern border. I mean, I really hope that not too much of the wall gets built before he's kicked out of office. But at the end of the day, the wall is not going to stop legal immigration. He has some other things he's trying to do to slow down legal immigration, like adding this public charge rule that tries to exclude poor people. And that will no doubt make some people's lives miserable, terrorize a number of uh, of people who thought they were going to be able to get, get citizenship here. And that's you know totally deplorable. But that's a measure that can be undone by a future president. What he has not secured and what the nativist movement has always wanted is permanent deep cuts to legal immigration. It's really interesting because that when you recognize that that's their aim, then your political calculus has to change. But so far, leaders, both Democrat and Republican, have seemed to willfully ignored that in part because they politically benefit by having a threat that they can portray themselves as being tough on, right? And Clinton was the expert at this. He just seemed to completely embrace the who's tougher on immigrants kind of ethos. And he did this specifically through the drug war. I'm just going to thank a few members for a moment. And and the place in the list where I am right now is uh, members who not only go above and beyond more than the minimum amount, but these people have been 
supporting the show for at least a couple of years. So some of them may have even been thanked before, but of course it makes perfect sense to thank them again. Uh, or if you, if they've been missed, then boy, is this overdue. So huge thanks to uh, Kay Vaughn, who threw me a curveball there with only the first initial, then Andy L, Peter L, Riley K, Pat Steve, another bit of a curveball there. You, you tell them, Pat Steve, uh, Lydia M, Susan V, Nancy B, Michael B, and Bev J. Thanks so much for your continued support of the show. As I always say, we absolutely could not do it without you. As for the rest of you, uh, here's a bit of what you've been missing out on. In my most recent bonus episode, I was joined by Amanda, who comes on from time to time to discuss the ways of the world. This time, it was because I had a major announcement to make about something I've invented, and I thought it'd be good to have someone to discuss it with. Although, unfortunately for you, I'm not quite ready to share the big news with everyone just yet, so being a member is the only way to get the inside track on that. But that wasn't all. We had bonus clips and discussed how the mostly rich, mostly white, moderate Democrats currently throwing a fit over not having their desires centered in the primaries is just the latest example of how fragile those with privilege tend to be. And we broke down a couple of thought experiments about how we think about the existence of billionaires in our society. And so we could really use your help right now. We got a lot of new members recently, mostly at the end of last year, but it wasn't enough to cover the shortfall in our ad revenue. We were effectively cut off from about 90% of our ads when we refused to be strong-armed into ditching our tried and true hosting service that we've been using since the very beginning in favor of a new service owned by a media giant conglomerate so that they could mine our listeners for data. So we stuck with the little guy and the data privacy, and we think it's going to be the right move long term, but we are being financially punished for it right now. So if you're interested in supporting our work and getting our bonus content like I described, it's available for $6 a month on Patreon. We have higher levels for those who can give more, like the people I've been thanking, and a lower level that gives ad-free versions of the show for just 2 bucks a month, but with no bonus episodes. Because I want to make sure you know that I am open to support from anyone and everyone, no matter the dollar amount. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft, which is linked right in the show notes on your device and on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bestofleft. Since you brought up racism and nativism and neoliberalism <laughs> and neocons... Uh, all these words being tossed about, and you said there's a history, right? We have a history of this in America. So I'm going to read this quote from your book. He is one of the most unfit men I know for such a place, the presidency. He has very little respect for laws and constitutions. He is a dangerous man. Maria, who could it be? You want to take a guess who that is? Well, obviously, if anybody's <laughs> listening to that, one of the most unfit men... <laughs> Little respect for laws and constitutions. I mean, it sounds like Donald Trump, obviously, but... But it's not, because Greg is uh, bringing the receipts. <laughs> That's actually a quote from Thomas Jefferson talking about President Andrew Jackson. Okay, so we've been here before. And it happens, coincidentally, oh my God, that Jackson is Trump's favorite president. Wow. So, <laughs> Greg... 
Yeah, what the hell? Jackson is is pretty much the er, symbol of American exceptionalism. He's the one who's like most identified with the idea of a of a small state. He's the one who's most identified with a kind of white settler democracy. You know, understanding um, liberty and freedom as explicitly a racist settler colonial project. Um, you know, the U.S. before Andrew Jackson had six presidents. You could call them the Coastal Coalition, uh, you know, the, mm, all of the presidents, the, the, the Founders Coalition. You know, those guys from Washington to John Quincy Adams, they wanted the whole continent. They imagined the United States moving from the Atlantic across the Midwest, across the West to the Pacific, but they didn't know how to make it happen. I mean, there were the Native Americans, Mexico stood in their way. You know, I don't want to whitewash the first six presidents. They were mm. they were ethnic cleansers in their own way, but they but they didn't have the capacity or the vision for how to clear the land. Jackson was the first frontier president. He he mm. came up in, in the Cumberland Gap and, and and established himself in Tennessee and Nashville, and he was a slaver. Uh, ran slaves down to the Gulf of Mexico. He was he uh, was a planter. He was a lawyer that made money off of the dispossession of Native American lands. Sounds like a fabulous American. And he and he became a national leader. <laughs> he became a national leader, destroying the Creeks and then raiding into Florida. So he he knew how to match yeah. tactics to desire. Right. Uh, he knew how to execute desire and and. He won the presidency in 1828 and then Indian removal, the removal of the five civilized tribes, Creeks and the Cherokees and, and others and, and moved them out to Oklahoma. And then that kicked off that cycle of dispossession. And he said he wasn't president during the annexation of Texas, but but he set in motion what led to the annexation of Texas and then the Mexican-American War. And this incredible, incredible expansionist impulse yeah. Made possible an unprecedented degree of freedom and liberty. White men, unpropertied and unleaded, did get the vote. They did get an enormous amount of power. The federal government had their backs as they moved west and settled the land. Wow. And this, and this kind of compromise, a mechanism in which white men would become politically empowered and that empowerment wouldn't lead to socialism. It mm -hmm. wouldn't lead to class conflict. It wouldn't lead to a labor party. It would lead to Western expansion and settlement. That's how you negated the possibility of class conflict. That's in the Jacksonian consensus. And, and it's deeply ingrained in American political culture. And yeah. I'll say one more thing. They hated Obama for the same reason they love Jackson. They were both frontier presidents. You know, Obama came up on the out of, on the fringes of U.S. authority in Hawaii, in Indonesia, you know, in Indonesia right after the U.S. coup there. And even though he was, again, bracketing what he actually was, he represented what Anglos and Caucasians put down as they moved west. Uh, Jackson represented the put-downers, mm. the people doing the put-downing. Yeah, yeah. So Trump loves him, like, in one sentence because Jackson... Because he, he is the symbol of a white nationalist notion of American freedom. Freedom as freedom of restraint for white people. Damn. Freedom hmm. of restraint. Connecting some dots here, Maria. <laughs> freedom, as free, freedom from restraint. Right. Freedom from restraint. So, Greg, are we going to remain in this doom? Are we just going to have to sit with the fact that we're living a moment of history that is horribly doomed? Or 
Are you feeling a little optimistic, Greg? Are you feeling like there might be a little bit of change coming? And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And just be totally serious. No bullshit. Okay. Well, both, obviously. What, at times you could feel optimistic. At times you could feel pessimistic. I mean, the level of the level of the cautioning of morality and sensibility that Donald Trump has presided over and even understanding the deep roots of Trumpism, the deep ideological roots, the way it, Trumpism is is really what came before but uninhibited. You know, when you think about the border policies of previously respectable presidents and the and the misery of that that was inflicted upon the the, the world's most vulnerable by Bill Clinton and mm. even by Barack Obama. Yes, yes. You know, it's but you can admit that Trump does represent a, a qualitative leap in the cautioning of sensibilities of moral consciousness and, and be depressed about that. On the other hand, you can be optimistic by the emergence and widening of the political discourse. And that's the point of the book. The point of the book is that that the frontier and the constant expansion led to a kind of oblongated politics in which a centrist kind of liberalism was presented as the highest point of modernity and and extremism was marginalized on the fringes. And there was the extremism of white supremacy, which in modern times never reached national power until Donald Trump, but there was also what's understood as the extremism of socialism. The frontier and my, the argument of the book is that the United States' recourse to expansion has allowed it to avoid a choice that other countries had had to face in the past and faced mm. it in different ways between barbarism and socialism. The United States never really had to face that on a national level. It could imagine a constant expansion as transcending that choice, though, you know, that the way you deal with class politics is by invoking infinity, by imagining an ever-growing pie. And, and now that we've come to the moment where that's no longer possible, where the limits are undeniable, what you're seeing is the emergence of that classic choice that other nations have had confronted in different ways between barbarism, and that's Donald Trump, and if not socialism, then at least social democracy. Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez and, and Bernie Sanders represents a widening of the political debate that would have been unheard of 10 years ago. And however one feels about any particular politician, what we're seeing here is an acceptance of social rights. What we're seeing here is an acceptance of the idea that healthcare is a right, that education is a right, that living a decent life is a right. And that is a profound rupture with American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism was a fetish of individual rights. Rights were only the right to own, the right to have, the right to say, the right to assemble, the right to believe. Social rights or economic rights were considered perverse, heretical. And what we're seeing now is a breakdown of that. And with the majority of, of particularly young people thinking that healthcare is a right. Mm. And it's a foundation of citizenship. And that's where I think the hope is. I'm feeling hopeful, Julio. (laughs) (laughs) That White House senior policy advisor and speechwriter Stephen Miller believes in white nationalism is evident by their policy, ye shall know them. 
But we now have, as it were, the receipts. The Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch reviewed hundreds of emails between Miller, when he was an aide to then-Senator Jeff Sessions, and Katie McHugh, then an editor at the far-right media outlet Breitbart. McHugh, who has since renounced the right, gave Hate Watch access to messages from 2015 and 2016 in which Miller pushes white nationalist books and racist immigration stories while saying things like, quote, Speaking of refugees, did you see the expanded list I emailed of foreign-born terrorists on Friday afternoon? Close quote. The point of course, is not simply that Miller himself is hateful or, frankly, scientifically illiterate, but that these ideas are now shaping the country's policy, especially on immigration. We're joined now by Michael Edison Hayden, senior investigative reporter at Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. Welcome to Counterspin, Michael Edison Hayden. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, in these emails where he's pushing stories and angles and sources to Breitbart, Stephen Miller's kind of a one-note Johnny. You know, there's definitely a coherence to the ideas that he's pushing and that he's promoting supporting documents for. You know, as we established in the first story in this investigation, over 80% of Miller's emails relate to the subjects of race and immigration. There are almost no emails that aren't referencing like, you know, a movie that might be playing or did you see this or, you know, did you see that on TV last night? Miller is focused like a laser on the subjects of race and immigration. McHugh told me in conversation that when she met Miller in person, he was also talking about race and immigration at that time. So this is a, a person who is like driven and consumed by this subject. The way he views the subject goes in only one direction, and that is non-white people and their associations with what he perceives to be, you know, criminality and danger and all these things, and just that. And when it came to the subject of whites committing crimes, like the Dylan Roof massacre, Miller was only interested in flipping the news away from that. Right. Well, it seems especially relevant for immigration policy that these emails present Stephen Miller as a fan of Calvin Coolidge. He he whines, I'm saying whines at one point. He says at one point, Coolidge shut down immigration. No one said he was violating the Statue of Liberty's purpose. What should we know about Coolidge and that policy? Your audience is probably a lot sharper about these things than the more mainstream audience who I don't think is, I've been trying to convey this to and when discussing this investigation, is how serious the Coolidge thing is for people who are just like, oh, it's a, he's a president or whatever, Yeah, don't really understand what the Immigration Act of 1924 really was about. It was about establishing racial quota laws in the United States, and it was based on eugenics, period, race science, and discredited race science that is the, you know, the equivalent of believing you could turn lead into gold. Right. That's a different matter, and it's also, I mean, beyond the fact that it's supremely dehumanizing. Miller talks about the heritage of Calvin Coolidge, the, the four decades of heritage of Calvin Coolidge. What he's talking about are the years between 1924 and 1965. And in 1965, we passed Hart Seller, 
which put an end to racial quota laws in the United States. His idea of make America great again is returning the country to a time in which there were racial quota laws in the United States that were, you know, in 1924, praised by Adolf Hitler. This is far more egregious than just a president from the past. Given that the apparent plan is to blow this all off as anti-Semitism, it seems meaningful that Hart Seller that undid that immigration policy from the 20s, that policy also discriminated against Jews. You know, it wasn't it was also anti-Semitic. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And the charge to me is Miller saying that he doesn't have any defense for this. He knows these are his own emails. And the idea that he would make that accusation of a civil rights organization Going back to when I started at SPLC in December of 2018, we exposed the identities of prominent anti-Semites and neo-Nazis, including this guy named Spector, who is a notorious uh, internet troll who was harassing Jews constantly online, and Slavros, the guy who founded the neo-Nazi forum Iron March, right. is another person who we reported on, and you know he's been linked to so many acts of terrorism recently and terror plots against Jews. You know, Miller, to me, he reaches to that because he doesn't have any other explanation for what he did and what he says. I mean, he should know better than anyone for the degree to which these policies of hate are connected to the rise in anti-Semitism that we see in the United States right now. I want to take one maybe side note to say it's one thing to amplify any statistic that you can find linking non-white people and crime while claiming that this is a pushback against the cover-up of those links by the left or by the media. You know, we sort of get that. You, you don't like people of color. You know, you don't, you don't want them around. But then there's contending that the Sandy Hook school shooting never happened, you know, legitimizing that sort of thing. And that takes you out into the stratosphere. But Miller sees or saw InfoWars as a legitimate source. Yeah, all we know is that Miller read the website. That is that is all we can really say about it. And promoted it, you know, and said, hey, take a story from this website. Yeah, exactly. He promoted it as a news source. Uh, absolutely. He, his daily reading materials, you know, based upon the stuff that we see in those websites are, you know, a ton of racist forums that I haven't even been able to get all into a story yet. But also, I mean, like big white supremacist websites like American Renaissance and VDAR. These are websites that believe uh, white genocide conspiracy theory. Peter Brimlow, who was the founder of VDAR, had a connection to Miller in 2007, according to sources that we spoke to, when Miller invited him to speak at Duke. So, I mean, I don't know if that takes you in a different direction than InfoWars, but we do know that the type of material that, that Miller was taking in, you know, as a reader and spitting back out to Breitbart is all in the, you know, in the conspiratorial realm. And different levels of conspiracy and different levels of racism, but all those sites have a little bit of both, at least. The Breitbart spokesperson denies that Stephen Miller shaped their content in any way, says, yeah, he pitched stories like anybody else. You know, Katie McHugh, meanwhile, says she was virtually Miller's stenographer. But frankly, I'm much less interested in whether Miller tainted the editorial process at Breitbart, you know, because I'm not sure you can mess up a junkyard. I'm more interested in his effect on actual immigration policy. So this is supporting evidence. 
isn't it, that what millions have been calling white nationalist policy really has its roots in that. You know, Adam Serwer wrote in The Atlantic, prejudice itself can exist without taking an ideological shape, but ideology can forge it into the sharpest and most deadly of weapons. And, you know, you're not writing a book review. It's not a gotcha. We found these emails. It's about connecting the philosophy, if you will, to the ideas that we're seeing play out before us. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I thought Adam's piece was really sharp. The way I would say it, and, it, you know, I think this is a difficult pill for a lot of people to swallow. And, you know, it's something that it started to hit me emotionally, I think, only after I had published, is the fact that if you are taking in, as you're reading material all the time and trading around you know, bad information from these websites, that is based around the idea that brown people are inherently inferior to white people, right? If that's what you're trafficking in day in and day out, you know, isn't it that much easier for someone like that to allow for the kind of cruelty that we're seeing at our southern border right now? Even the most aware people, I think, sometimes have a hard time realizing, you know, where their tax dollars might be going. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestfulleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. We often hear these days that the immigration system is broken. I want to make the case today that our immigration conversation is broken and to suggest some ways that together we might build a better one. In order to do that, I'm going to propose some new questions about immigration, the United States, and the world. Questions that might move the borders of the immigration debate. I'm not going to begin with the feverish argument that we're currently having, even as the lives and well-being of immigrants are being put at risk at the U.S. border and far beyond it. Instead, I'm going to begin with me in graduate school in New Jersey in the mid-1990s, earnestly studying U.S. history, which is what I currently teach as a professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I wasn't studying, sometimes to avoid writing my dissertation, um, my friends and I would go into town to hand out neon-colored flyers protesting legislation 
that was threatening to take away immigrants' rights. Our flyers were sincere, they were well-meaning, they were factually accurate, but I realize now they were also kind of a problem. Here's what they said. Don't take away immigrant rights to public education, to medical services, to the social safety net. They work hard. They pay taxes. They're law-abiding. They use social services less than Americans do. They're eager to learn English. And their children serve in the U.S. military all over the world. Now, these are, of course, arguments that we hear every day. Immigrants and their advocates uh, use them as they confront those who would deny immigrants their rights or even exclude them from society. And up to a certain point, it makes perfect sense that these would be the kinds of claims that immigrants' defenders would turn to. But in the long term, and maybe even in the short term, I think these arguments can be counterproductive. Why? Because it's always an uphill battle to defend yourself on your opponent's terrain. And unwittingly, the handouts that my friends and I were handing out and the versions of these arguments that we hear today were actually playing the anti-immigrants game. We were playing that game in part by envisioning that immigrants were outsiders, rather than, as I'm hoping to suggest in a few minutes, people that are already, in important ways, on the inside. It's those who are hostile to immigrants, the nativists, who have succeeded in framing the immigration debate around three main questions. First, there's the question of whether immigrants can be useful tools. How can we use immigrants? Will they make us richer and stronger? The nativist answer to this question is no. Immigrants have little or nothing to offer. The second question is whether immigrants are others. Can immigrants become more like us? Are they capable of becoming more like us, of capable of assimilating? Are they willing to assimilate? Here again, the nativist answer is no. Immigrants are permanently different from us and inferior to us. And the third question is whether immigrants are parasites. Are they dangerous to us and will they drain our resources? Here, the nativist answer is yes and yes. Immigrants pose a threat and they sap our wealth. I would suggest that these three questions and the nativist animus behind them have succeeded in framing the larger contours of the immigration debate. These questions are anti-immigrant and nativist at their core, built around a kind of hierarchical division of insiders and outsiders, us and them, in which only we matter and they don't. And what gives these questions traction and power beyond the circle of committed nativists is the way that they tap into an everyday, seemingly harmless sense of national belonging and activate it, heighten it, and inflame it. Nativists commit themselves to making stark distinctions between insiders and outsiders, but the distinction itself is at the heart of the way nations define themselves. The fissures between inside and outside which often run deepest along lines of race and religion, are always there to be deepened and exploited. 
And that potentially gives nativist approaches resonance far beyond those who consider themselves anti-immigrant, and remarkably, even among some who consider themselves pro-immigrant. So, for example, when immigrants' allies answer these questions the nativists are posing, they take them seriously, they legitimate those questions, and to some extent, the anti-immigrant assumptions that are behind them. When we take these questions seriously, without even knowing it, we're reinforcing the closed, exclusionary borders of the immigration conversation. So how did we get here? How did these become the leading ways that we talk about immigration? Here we need some backstory, which is where my history training comes in. During the first century of the U.S.'s status as an independent nation, uh, it did very little to restrict immigration at the national level. In fact, many policymakers and employers worked hard to recruit immigrants, to build up industry, and to serve as settlers, to seize the continent. But after the Civil War, nativist voices rose in volume and in power. The Asian, Latin American, Caribbean, and European immigrants who dug Americans' canals, cooked their dinners, fought their wars, and put their children to bed at night were met with a new and intense xenophobia, which cast immigrants as permanent outsiders who should never be allowed to become insiders. By the mid-1920s, the nativists had won, erecting racist laws that closed out untold numbers of vulnerable immigrants and refugees. Immigrants and their allies did their best to fight back, but they found themselves on the defensive, caught in some ways in the nativists' frames. When nativists said that immigrants weren't useful, their allies said, yes, they are. When nativists uh, accused immigrants of being others, their allies promised that they would assimilate. When nativists charged that immigrants were dangerous parasites, their allies emphasized their loyalty their obedience, their hard work, and their thrift. Even as advocates welcomed immigrants, many still regarded immigrants as outsiders, to be pitied, to be rescued, to be uplifted, and to be tolerated, but never fully brought inside as equals in rights and respect. You point out that for decades, hardcore xenophobia had seeped into conservative politics, transmitted across an ascendant network of right-wing television, radio, and ultimately Internet outlets. Republicans and Democrats facing a series of insurgencies on the right provided ideological cover to a constellation of stridently anti-immigrant organizations and constructed an enormous machinery of repression. Why would they provide cover for stridently anti-immigrant organizations that constructed an enormous machinery of repression? What was the strategic thinking behind providing the far right that cover? Well, I mean, one way to look at it is what was called under the Clinton administration triangulation, which is uh, 
to, uh, and I don't remember who I'm quoting here, but <laughs> uh, by, incorpor- by incorporating the opposition's rhetoric, you remove their policy claims. And that is this idea that you co-opt, that, that you have Democrats like Bill Clinton co-opting the right's language, whether it's on welfare or crime, and of course on immigration as well. And you, you pursue policies that are in the same direction, but not maybe as psychotically harsh as the hard right is going to pursue. And that worked for Bill Clinton. He won re-election, or at least it didn't hurt him. We don't know. There are arguments about why Bill Clinton won re-election uh, in 1996, but it, but, but it didn't, it, at least didn't cause him to not get re-elected. But what that did over time is increasingly uh, move the debate about immigration to the right. And the good news here is that finally, the bipartisan basis, the popular bipartisan basis amongst the American people that has been the constituency for the bipartisan war on immigrants has come apart. That started in 2006 when congressional Republicans pushed this just really right-wing anti-immigrant bill that passed the House called the Sensenbrenner Bill, which uh, you you probably remember and some listeners remember, which would have criminalized mere undocumented presence in the country, which then and now remains a civil offense, not a criminal offense. It would have also potentially criminalized providing any sort of aid to undocumented immigrants. And that uh, passed in December 2005, and it sparked massive protests, huge, huge protests throughout 2006 um, that took place in Chicago, L.A., all over this country. And since then, the, the, the war on immigrants has increasingly polarized the debate, which is a good thing. So even as the right wing becomes even more uh, emphatic about uh, about openly racist proclamations that about the threat that immigrants pose to this country. Increasingly, voters from the center through left have pushed in the other direction. And right now, actually, the, and people would be surprised to hear this, but the American people embrace probably the most pro-immigrant opinions in the history of this country. And so it's increasingly clear that Democrats need to put forward a strongly pro-immigrant agenda, because it's like uh, the, the the sociolinguist George Lakoff's argument: "Don't think of an elephant. Don't do not accept the premises and framing of the right, or you will lose the debate. So don't don't accept the fra- the premise that there's a problem with social security that requires cuts to it, because you're giving that issue to the Republicans and to the right. And the same has been true on immigration. So when Trump talks about a wall." It's a huge mistake. Then Democrats say, well, we believe that the border needs to be more secure, but we don't we don't think the way he's going about it with this wall is going to be effective. Trump is going to win the debate on those terms. The debate, the left needs to be clear and we need to push as many Democrats in line as possible that there's not a border security problem. In fact, we have a border militarization problem. Again, we've seen hundreds of miles of fencing built on the border in the last few decades, we've seen the size of the border patrol absolutely explode. The border is nothing like what it was before the 1990s. One could cross fairly easily before then. Now it's a war zone, and that's a war zone of the U.S. government's making. And the premise of the entire thing has been that securing the borders, quote unquote, will make the American people feel more secure. That's not what has happened. We have gilded age level inequality, stagnant wages, opioid overdoses leading to record uh, drug overdose deaths. The, securing the border has been a performance 
to try to convince the American people that the government could keep them secure. And it's clearly not the case. And so opposition to nativism has to be clear and full throated. We can't have, um, you know, Stephen Miller was on Fox News the other day telegraphing how Trump would want to run against Bernie Sanders, calling him kind of an open border socialist. Well, guess what? Any Democrat who runs, even one with a horrifically anti-immigrant record like Joe Biden, who not only helped Obama oversee record deportations, but also voted for the Secure Fence Act in 2006, which led to the construction of over 600 miles of border fencing, which in many cases, by the way, looks a bit like what Trump might call a wall. Even if Biden were the nominee, God forbid, Trump will call him an open border socialist. So we need to break trying to try the triangulation no longer works because the debate is polarizing and we the right simply has to be defeated. They can't be appeased. So triangulation is not ending, though it should end. The framing that conservatives are doing of the issues is not ending. The Democrats seemingly allow them to frame every issue. Every Democrat, after the assassination of uh, Soleimani, had to come out and say right before they had any criticism of Trump's actually assassinating of Soleimani, that, of course, Soleimani is a bad man and he must have blood on his hands and that he's the second most powerful people person in Iran. All three of those things are very contested and very much up in the air. What does it say to you? Except for Bernie, except for Bernie Sanders, his tweet led with this is an this is an assassination, not he's a bad guy. Right. But what does it say to you? Okay, Bernie Sanders aside, what does it say to you about the Democrats that they still have been unable to overcome this conservative framing of every issue and that they have to give qualifiers that appease to the Republican Party and the far right on every issue. I mean, I think it shows that they learn nothing. I mean, this is the the whole history of of the last few decades of immigration politics. George W. Bush and Barack Obama both wanted to achieve uh, so-called comprehensive immigration reform, which would legalize millions of undocumented people in this country, and that's good, but they would be paired with uh, more enforcement at the border and more guest worker programs. And what they did, they thought that increasing deportations, increasing border militarization would win the right over to supporting legalizing undocumented immigrants. And guess what? That didn't happen because the right just wants those immigrants gone. And so when Bush and Obama increased border militarization, engaged in spectacular mass deportation campaigns, the the right was just like, well, well, thank you, but that's not good enough. So they never won the right over. And uh, it's hard to say why. That's a good question. Like, why don't Democrats get that? I mean, in part, it's because it's not just a strategic calculation. It's because many leading Democrats just have bad values. Like they're not they don't have progressive or left values. And they, in fact, believe what they say when Bill Clinton said in 19 in the 1990s, uh, something along the lines of we are a nation of of immigrants, but we do not accept we will not tolerate those whose first act upon entering this country is breaking the law, i.e. being an undocumented immigrant. You know, like we have to believe that that's not just, uh, you know, a a triangulation strategy, but a a political opinion that is itself hostile to, to immigrants, because Otherwise, it's very hard to understand why they why they can't get the lesson that this triangulation doesn't work because it's consistently failed and consistently moved 
the direction of the entire political debate towards the right. But finally, I think the basis for that thing is snapping. The Democratic Party is not there, but the people who vote for the Democratic Party are increasingly there. And that's the good news. After World War II, and especially from the mid-1960s until really recently, uh, immigrants and their allies turned the tide, overthrowing mid-20th century restriction and winning instead a new system that prioritized family reunification, the admission of refugees, and the admission of those with special skills. But even then, they didn't succeed in fundamentally changing the terms of the debate. And so that framework endured, ready to be taken up again in our own convulsive moment. That conversation is broken. The old questions are harmful and divisive. So how do we get from that conversation to one that's more likely to get us closer to a world that is fairer, that is more just, that's more secure? I want to suggest that what we have to do is one of the hardest things that any society can do, to redraw the boundaries of who counts, of whose life, whose rights, and whose thriving matters. We need to redraw the boundaries. We need to redraw the borders of us. In order to do that, we need to first take on a worldview that's widely held, um, but also seriously flawed. According to that worldview, there's the inside of the national boundaries, inside the nation, which is where we live, work, and mind our own business. And then there's the outside. There's everywhere else. According to this worldview, when immigrants cross into the nation, they're moving from the outside to the inside, but they remain outsiders. Any power or resources they receive are gifts from us rather than rights. Now, it's not hard to see why this is such a commonly held worldview. It's reinforced in everyday ways that we talk and act and behave, down to the bordered maps that we hang up in our schoolrooms. The problem with this worldview is that it just doesn't correspond to the way the world actually works and the way it has worked in the past. Of course, American workers have built up wealth in society. But so have immigrants, particularly in parts of the American economy that are indispensable and where few Americans work, like agriculture. Since the nation's founding, Americans have been inside the American workforce. Of course, Americans have built up institutions in society that guarantee rights. But so have immigrants. They've been there during every major social movement like civil rights and organized labor, that have fought to expand rights in society for everyone. So immigrants are already inside the struggle for rights, democracy, and freedom. And finally, Americans and other citizens of the global north haven't minded their own business, and they haven't stayed within their own borders. They haven't respected other nations' borders. They've gone out into the world with their armies. They've taken over territories and resources and they've extracted enormous profits from many of the countries that immigrants are from. 
In this sense, many immigrants are actually already inside American power. With this different map of inside and outside in mind, the question isn't whether receiving countries are going to let immigrants in. They're already in. The question is whether the United States and other countries are going to give immigrants access to the rights and resources that their work, their activism, and their home countries have already played a fundamental role in creating. With this new map in mind, we can turn to a set of tough, new, urgently needed questions, radically different from the ones we've asked before. Questions that might change the borders of the immigration debate. Our, our three questions are about workers' rights, about responsibility, and about equality. First, we need to be asking about workers' rights. How do existing policies make it harder for immigrants to defend themselves and easier for them to be exploited, driving down wages, rights, and protections for everyone? When immigrants are threatened with roundups, detention, and deportations, their employers know that they can be abused, that they can be told that if they fight back, they'll be turned over to ICE. When employers know that they can terrorize an immigrant with his lack of papers, it makes that worker hyper-exploitable, and that has impacts not only for immigrant workers, but for all workers. Second, we need to ask questions about responsibility. What role have rich, powerful countries like the United States played in making it hard or impossible for immigrants to stay in their home countries? Picking up and moving from your country is difficult and dangerous, but many immigrants simply do not have the option of staying home if they want to survive. Wars, trade agreements, and consumer habits rooted in the global north play a major and devastating role here. What responsibilities do the United States, the European Union, and China, the world's leading carbon emitters, have to the millions of people already uprooted by global warming? And third, we need to ask questions about equality. Global inequality is a wrenching, intensifying problem. Income and wealth gaps are widening around the world. Increasingly, what determines whether you're rich or poor more than anything else, is what country you're born in, which might seem great if you're from a prosperous country, but it actually means a profoundly unjust distribution of the chances for a long, healthy, fulfilling life. When immigrants send money or goods home to their family, it plays a significant role in narrowing these gaps, if a very incomplete one. It does more than all the foreign aid programs in the world combined. We began with the nativist questions about immigrants as tools, uh, as others, and as parasites. Where might these new questions about worker rights, about responsibility, and about equality take us? These questions reject pity, and they embrace justice. These questions reject the nativist and nationalist division of us versus them. They're going to help prepare us for problems that are coming and problems like global warming that are already upon us. It's not going to be easy to turn away from the questions that we've been asking towards this new set of questions. 
it's no small challenge to take on and broaden the borders of us. It will take wit, inventiveness, and courage. The old questions have been with us for a long time, and they're not going to give way on their own, and they're not going to give way overnight. And even if we manage to change the questions, the answers are going to be complicated, and they're going to require sacrifices and trade-offs. And in an unequal world, we're always going to have to pay attention to the question of who has the power to join the conversation and who doesn't. But the borders of the immigration debate can be moved. It's up to all of us to move them. We've just heard clips today, starting with In the Thick, in two parts, speaking with Greg Grandin about the history of expansion and empire that has led us to our current border brutalism. Jacobin Radio spoke with Daniel Denver about the ironic turn for nationalists who are now unable to rally support for a strictly anti-immigration policy rather than a merely anti-illegal immigration policy. Counterspin discussed the revealed white supremacy of Stephen Miller and his influence in the White House. This is Hell also spoke with Daniel Denver about the importance of understanding the framing of our immigration debate and the fact that society is ready for a pro-immigrant policy. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Paul Kramer in two parts, talking about many of the framing traps we fall into when trying to defend immigrants on the nationalist turf. As always, there will be bonus content for our members this week, which includes usually bonus clips extra voicemails, and especially more commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode. To get all of that, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Jay, it's James out of uh, Sacramento, California. I want to talk about something that's one of your callers uh, in the last show. He was talking about how certain people sat out in 2016 because their candidate, I guess Bernie, didn't get in, um, and which helped hand, the, hand it to Trump. And, and I heard a tinge of fear in this guy's voice when he was talking. And that's the thing that's bothering me about this whole electability thing that the media keeps cramming down our throats. And it's really driving me nuts, and I'm tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of the horse race. And maybe I'm being overly idealistic here, but I just got to say, and please hear me out, we cannot make it about Donald Trump. If we do, then we've already lost. We're coming from a place of fear. I mean, everybody's always about who's going to beat Donald Trump, who's going to beat Donald Trump. The way people talk, it's almost like he can't be beaten. You know, it's not possible. We cannot be against someone or something we have to be for something okay we have to be for a progressive vision that we believe in a progressive vision and do we really believe in our progressive vision that's what we should be asking ourselves not you know who's going to beat donald trump we have to be not on defense but on offense we have to be pushing for um a higher minimum wage pushing um for companies to start paying people commensurate with their um, productivity. We have to be pushing for health care for all. 
for a decent nutrition for all. We have to be pushing for treating, you know, immigrants humanely. We have to be pushing for treating everybody in this country as all as brothers and sisters, treating everybody with their human rights. We're all brothers and sisters. These are the things we need to be pushing for. And, you know, if it doesn't happen on the federal level, then maybe we should start working really hard on the local levels, in the towns, in our cities. That's all I got to say. It can't be about defeating Donald Trump. It has to be about fighting for something. That's how, you know, gay folks got um, a lot of their rights because they went on offense. You said that in one of your in one of your shows. You know, they went on offense. That's how you win. Okay. Thanks for letting me ramble. I love you, brother. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan uh, responding to your comments on 1338 regarding the primaries, and I'll have to disagree with you. You know, I watched very carefully the Iowa caucuses, and after I get off this voicemail here, I'll, I'm going to see if I can Google to see how many people did the first rank choice and then walked away in the second. And here's my argument. If you went through all the trouble to show up at a specific time to caucus, and I know it's, I'm just talking Iowa because that's the one I witnessed, right? But you planned your, you know, your month or, or so, you planned on being available to show up. And you showed up and you picked a candidate. And then you walked away after that. Like, you were already vested. And I'm not talking about people that didn't show up because that's the people I think you're talking about that that say, I don't care who it is, I'll vote for it. I don't really have any vested interest in the primary just wait for the general those people didn't show up at the caucuses but the caucus unlike a primary election you have a specific you got to be there at seven o'clock at night or whatever the time is and sit there for an hour and a half two hours and to walk away from that after making that commitment i think there's i think there's more of that and you know i watched last night's debate and the first you know 45 minutes of it was nothing but this you know garbage bickering and and stuff that everybody hates and I, I disagree with the commentary that, you know, Bernie King did so well and, and so forth. I think a lot of it was just mudsling. It picked it up at the end, I think, after Amy made her comments. But I am still very much concerned because I still think that, that that's a huge reality, depending upon who the nominee is and, and what the DNC does. Because obviously, uh, we've seen before, they're going to do what they want to do. So anyway, those those are my reactions. I'd like to see where we you and I go with this with regards to disagreement maybe you agree with me maybe maybe you have a, a totally different opinion and we'll just have to see how it plays out all right stay awesome have a good day thanks for listening everyone thanks to our production assistant joel mckean who helps gather clips to make this show possible thanks to amanda hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line if you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991 so to respond to uh, alan I don't know how much of a disagreement we're we're having or not. We, you know, as I think happens a lot, you know, we might be just talking past each other. I don't think I have that strong of an opinion. I, I certainly don't have data to to back anything up. I was I was putting out a theory of, you know, why why might people seem 
uninterested or or seem unenergetic in the primary in such a way that doesn't mean they are not energetic about the general election. You know, I'm I'm flying a bit by the seat of my pants here. We're going to be getting a lot more into the details of the primary next week and and into more sort of concrete opinions. But as for voter sentiment, uh, the first rule is uh, there's a range. No one thing that's happening or one event we witness or one person we hear interviewed is indicative of very much more than, well, a sliver of people probably think along those lines. But, you know, there's a huge, huge, huge range. I tend to think, based on what's happening in the primary, that progressive voters are coalescing around Bernie. That's that's not me going way out on a limb. That's kind of obvious based on how things are going. I did not expect for Bernie to be pulling out in the lead as he is with Elizabeth Warren falling back as far as she has. You know, I thought progressives may be more evenly split along those lines. But if people were to follow my advice, what I have always said is that those two candidates are the two progressive candidates. I don't think you can even call any of the other candidates progressive. And so if you want progressive policies implemented from the White House, one of those two candidates is going to be your best bet. And if one of them is farther ahead or, you know, pretty far ahead, or it seems like they have the best chance of winning, well, then any progressive voter would do well to vote for the leading progressive candidate to try to push them into the winner's circle. So maybe people are taking my advice. Maybe people who really prefer Elizabeth Warren are saying, okay, look, like I really want for her to win, but Bernie really has a chance. So I'll put my vote towards him. Maybe that's happening. Now, on the flip side, you got the more conservative and moderate and and corporate-friendly Democratic candidates and their voters, and it's a lot more of a scrum. Joe Biden was the assumed frontrunner, but he's been a mess. He can't string sentences together, and I think people quite rightly, were maybe a little off-put by that and, and hesitant, and the fact that he came in so far down in the rankings in the first three primaries is making a lot of people nervous, of course. So then, you know, as I say, it's a a scrum. You got the Buttigieg supporters, you got Bloomberg coming in from the wings. And so if you are a a more conservative or moderate Democratic voter, then I think you may be suffering from analysis paralysis right now. And if your first choice doesn't get in, well, then you may think like, oh, I don't even know where to go from here. I don't know who the next best person is. I don't know who's going to be in the lead. I don't know who to consolidate around. And so, uh, you know, a sense of, I don't know how to get to where I want to go from here could lead to this display of sort of lackluster energy or interest in the primaries, as Alan is describing from, you know, specifically from a caucus where people had a first choice and they were excited about that or, you know, who knows how excited, but excited enough to go in caucus, which is a, you know, a, a big investment in time. And then when that doesn't work out for you and, and, and your first choice gets booted, 
then, uh, you know, people may feel lost and feeling lost isn't the same as feeling unenthusiastic or unenergized. People could just feel lost. And what is emerging is a mirror image perspective of the 2016 election. We have the moderate Democrats being the ones who are sort of having to voice an opinion one way or the other. Articles are being written that say either, I am a moderate Democrat, I don't want Bernie Sanders to be our nominee, but if he is, I promise to support him. There's that perspective on one side, and then there is the absolutely immoral, illogical, unjustifiable perspective that we would all be better off with four more years of Donald Trump than with a President Bernie Sanders for the sake of who knows what these people are thinking. I think mostly they're thinking of for the sake of the Democratic Party to be the way I personally want it to be as an extremely privileged person who will not actually suffer at the hands of a second term of Donald Trump, people like that are the ones being called out for their extreme privilege, just as the Bernie or Bust people were called out for their privileged stance four years ago, basically saying, whether it was four years ago or now, if you were saying, uh, you know, look, Trump is better than the person on the in the Democratic Party that I don't like. To say that is to say, look, I am willing to sacrifice the safety, the health, and possibly even the lives of members of our most vulnerable communities in order for me to get my preferred political outcome in the long run. And that is simply an immoral stance to take unless you are on the front lines. If you're on the front lines, you are a member of one of our, our you know most vulnerable communities. A Trump presidency threatens your personal health, life, safety, and you stand up and say, hey, the Democratic nominee is so distasteful to me that I would prefer a second term of Donald Trump. I will respect the opinion of that person. I have never heard a person like that speak up. I only hear from people speaking from positions of privilege who are willing to sacrifice the the health and lives of others in order for them to get their way. So, so what I'm saying is whether you get into the details or you just look at the, the broad spectrum of how the primary is going so far, it's a clusterfuck to use a technical political science term. And when things are a clusterfuck, people end up frozen in indecision and indecision can look like lack of interest or lack of energy. But in the general election, there will be no confusion as to what we are voting for. There will be a stark choice and people will be given the opportunity to weigh in on that stark choice. And at that point, all of the indecision, all of the analysis paralysis will melt away, and then we will see where people stand when they cast their votes. As I said, we'll be getting into more of this next week, so this conversation is far from over, I mean, for all of the obvious reasons. So keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, and what I am going to start saying today, and I, I have a note to remind me to say it in every episode in which I remember uh, between now and the election, is that 
it is the duty of every citizen with the ability to vote to vote with the most vulnerable communities. I think the vast majority of people listening to this show don't need to be convinced of that very much, but that is the argument that I would like to see echo out into our political conversation to undercut anyone who argues an alternative vision, an idea that a Bernie Sanders administration would be worse than Trump, so let's just let Trump have it for four more years, or a a moderate corporate Democrat would be so bad that it might as well be the same as another four years of Trump, so who cares, let Trump have it. Either of those positions is completely unacceptable as it uh, appeases at the very least and practically tacitly endorses, if not outright endorses, a presidency of a man with explicitly authoritarian tendencies and fascist goals. No amount of bickering within the Democratic Party should be able to blind anyone to the harm that would be caused by eight full years of a Donald Trump presidency. So much so that it's possible to imagine it taking decades, if not a lifetime, to bounce back from. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.